0: When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you all go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A person dressed in luxurious robes? Look, those whose clothing is lavish and who live in self indulgence are in royal palaces. What then did you all go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the reign of God is greater than he. Now all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, professed the righteousness of God being baptized with the baptism of John. But by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the legal scholars rejected God's counsel for themselves. To what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children in the marketplace, sitting and calling to one another. We played the flute for you all, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you all did not weep. For John the baptizer has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you all say, "He has a demon." The son of woman has come eating and drinking, and you all say, "Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Luke seven twenty four through thirty five.
1: good morning everyone oh wow today my name is jonah my pronouns are they them theirs and i'm your lead pastor here at zao i love uh i love that we do a secular song before the sermon after passing of the peace and it's always interesting to me like how that sets things up um but also what kind of hidden messages are in there that we don't know about because we haven't read the scripture yet. But today's scripture, at some level, is about tone policing. And that is this beautiful tone policing anthem, right? You don't own me. You can't tell me what to say or what to do. Let me be myself. That's all I ask. That's all I ask. And here in the today's scripture, we have this passage that I think often goes um, sort of overlooked. Anytime there's a, a very specific cultural reference that Jesus is making in the Gospels, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over it, right? Because it doesn't mean anything to us. So when Jesus says, what am I to say about this generation? They're like children in the marketplace saying to one another, we played the flute for you all and you did not dance. We wailed, and you didn't weep. And so we're sort of like, weird. (laughs) Moving on, (laughs) right? But that's because we don't have a cultural reference for what that means. And interestingly, um, this is Jesus making reference to uh, Aesop's fable. There's a fable that came a few hundred years before Jesus, so it was culturally known. So it would be, you know, like me referencing up here, the tortoise and the hare, for instance. And you would all instantly know what I was talking about. But this fable is about uh, this mythology that Jesus is building on in his culture. It's about the disconnect, the disconnect between people in positions of power. In Aesop's fable, it's a fisherman and the fish that he's trying to catch. And the people who are, who are being dominated by that power. Because those in power are saying, hey, when I'm happy, you should be happy. And when I'm mad, you should be mad. And for some reason, this doesn't always match up. And that seems to be a you problem. Right? So here, Jesus is identifying that the people in power that aren't satisfied with John's asceticism, the, John comes in eating no bread, drinking no wine, fasting, connecting to God through you know, minimalism and reflection, really being connected to, to, uh, to calling out sin, right? John the Baptist ultimately beheaded for calling out the sin of people in power. And they're like, oh no, he has a demon. And then Jesus comes along drinking, and dancing, and feasting, and partying with people, and they're like, oh no. Oh no, Jesus. That's all wrong too. And so you see this kind of tone policing from people in power saying, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're supposed to dance when we play the flute. You're supposed to weep when we wail. And this disconnect Rather than investigating it, the people in power that Jesus are calling out, you know, why is there this huge disconnect between my emotional experience and the emotional experience of of working people? Instead of investigating that, they critique the powerless. So when people in power tone police, they're asking you to have an emotional experience resonant with them. When we are asking people to soften their tone or to get on board or to see the good side of things or to be more generous, if we're coming from a position of power, we need to be very self-reflective about whether we are asking people to join us in our emotional location rather than investigating why people who have less power than us are having a different emotional experience. But in a world of hierarchy and domination, often what feels good to the people in power causes immeasurable harm to those oppressed. And sometimes what feels devastating to those in power creates opportunity and hope and joy for those seeking freedom from oppression. Now, there have been a number of studies that demonstrate that the more power a person has, in any measurable capacity, the less empathy they are likely to have. There is a direct and measurable inverse relationship between power and empathy. Stanford University psychology professor, Jamil Zaki, says that the less we need people, the less likely we are to have empathy. This feels really telling because God's, Creation, from day one, from Genesis 1, is a system of, it's an ecosystem, and it's a system of interdependence. That is the design we've been asked to steward. But ultimately, the whole system is interdependent. And yet, the human approach to history has been one of dominance, dominating the land, dominating other cultures, colonizing. Extracting from one another, rather than relying on one another. And no one knows this better than the people from whom all that power has been extracted. Now that's a very different emotional experience. None of it's great. Spoilers, this doesn't work awesome for anyone. It is not emotionally healthy, it is not spiritually whole to be a colonizer, to be an oppressor, to be in a power, in a place of domination. But it's a lot easier to pretend from that vantage point, to pretend that you don't actually need anyone because your survival no longer depends on the love, compassion, generosity, and connection to other people. And so, people in positions of power or any areas in an individual's life where we have relative power, we are more likely to close ourselves off close ourselves off from connecting to others, from understanding our need for others, from having an emotional connection to others, viewing others with empathy and compassion. Whereas, when people rightly depend on one another for survival, even though we've pushed that to the absolute extremes, right? Last week we talked about these miracles that we push (laughs) We push God into. We back God into a corner and say, save us. And God does. And God does that over and over through these networks of compassion and love and brilliance and creativity. So even though we're pushing that to its, its limit, it is functionally the, the internal logic of God's creation, that it shouldn't be pushed to its limits, but that is how we are meant to live, dependent, interdependent on one another supporting one another. And I believe that this is actually one of the mechanics behind the truism that God shows up most at the margins, right? Because the margins, rather than like domination, having to lean away from God's systems, God's logic of love, the margins necessarily must lean into interdependence. People under oppression, have to rely on one another. And Zaki says, this is why you see people in less privileged settings, people who are oppressed, much more skilled at empathy. But there's another dynamic here, right? Because why? Why is it that people in power don't want to connect to that natural God-given empathy? What is it that we shut off in ourselves when we are in a position of power? Well, Zaki says that people with a lot of power are less inclined to focus on others with less power because in doing that, they might have to realize that they are materially benefiting from those systems that harm people. This is a conversation we have constantly about white supremacy, right? that it is, it is emotionally difficult for white folks to cop to our material benefits from systems that, that harm and degrade and dehumanize others. And this carries across all kinds of privilege, all kinds of privilege. Zaki says, when, we, when someone feels that they are the culprit of harm for somebody else, it's a threat to them. We want to view ourselves as good people. And when you're forced to see yourself as a perpetrator or as part of a group of perpetrators, that damages your ability to continue seeing yourself as good. Now, we know that we have goodness inherent in us. We know that God has gifted us with God's own image, which tells me that we are eternally capable of empathy and that we are not beyond the ability to connect with one another and to repair harm. But it is much easier in the short term to shut oneself off from those extremely difficult emotions than to actually feel the pain, not only the guilt of being implicated, but the actual pain caused to other people by our power or by the power inherent in the systems that we benefit from. And that reckoning, That coming to terms with the pain of others, this is the core logic of empathy. Now, we see how power rejects empathy and power rejects humanity at lots of different levels. I experienced this on kind of a interpersonal level, this kind of day in day out coping level in the most extreme way in my life when I was uh, incarcerated. So I spent a few months in federal prison. Um, I went because I had engaged in some civil disobedience around um, peace efforts and interrupting military machines. But, you know, if I had been a different person, if I had had less privilege, I might very well have gone to prison for different reasons earlier in my life. And when I went, there were a lot of people, a lot of people of sharing the privilege that I had, who were very scared for me to go to prison. And they would say, aren't you scared of the other inmates? And I knew a bit before I went into prison. Shocker, I became an abolitionist in prison. (laughs) So I, I wasn't totally there yet before I went in, but I was like, you know what? We're just gonna find out. I'm gonna be open to people I have no idea. And when I got there, I experienced this dynamic immediately. I felt absolutely, utterly dehumanized, devalued. I felt like the gum on the bottom of the shoe of everyone working for the prison, all the guards, all the people doing intake. I felt like trash to them. And then when I got there, there was a whole welcoming crew of other inmates who had never met me before. They just knew that someone was coming in that day. They had provided, uh, like a like a gift basket, <laughs> you know. It was stuff like the not terrible flip flops that you could buy for extra on commissary, and a toothbrush, which the prison had not provided to me. Right. So like, they were welcoming me and checking in on me and taking care of me. They didn't even know me. And that dynamic continued for the next two months. When my grandfather died while I was incarcerated. It was the inmates who were there for me, who felt that pain of separation from loved ones. And it was the guards screaming in my face to get back to work. I experienced that disconnect, that dehumanizing. And again, studies show this is self-protective. The guards, the warden, like all those folks implicated in dehumanizing all of the inmates in that system, were protecting themselves from that feeling of, oh, man, maybe putting people in cages and treating like the, them like animals and getting paid for it is like a bad way to survive. Right? So protecting themselves, this is taken to its most logical extreme in other studies that demonstrate this dynamic related to the death penalty. So, people, are, uh, people implicated in systems of the carceral state are always likely to dehumanize prisoners. But people are most likely to dehumanize prisoners that have been sentenced to death. And the level to which they demonstrate dehumanization is directly correlated to how involved they will be or are in the prisoner's death. Right? It is a self-protective mechanism. And it happens on this interpersonal level. Well, that person, that's that's not a man, that's a monster. Right? That's the the internal off valve to empathy that someone has to engage (laughs) in order to take the life of another person. And our, our systems, our social narratives have been built around this. In another set of studies, psychologists talked to American white folks about Native American genocide at the hands of colonizing white folks. And after having these conversations, right, they weren't even introducing any new information, but they are bringing up this memory, this collective memory of genocide. And afterward, there was a measurable effect that the white subjects tended to dehumanize Native Americans, and expressed views that indicated that Native peoples were less capable of experiencing a full range of human emotion. When we talk about generational trauma, we're not just talking about individual stuff, right? We're talking about these patterns that are inscribed and re-inscribed. And in some ways, if we want to take the most generous possible view of this, this is a survival strategy, right? Because if white folks in that situation were to contend with the level of violence that their ancestors had inflicted upon Native peoples, it would be very difficult to encounter. Very difficult. Not as difficult as being Native. And certainly, like we talk about with emotions all the time, right? This is the same thing as any other difficult emotion that we hold in our bodies, it's like being in a tunnel. And we can hunker down and shield ourselves for as long as we want, but we're not gonna get any movement that way. The only way through a difficult emotion, a difficult process, is to engage it, to look at head on, to face it, and in this case, face it collectively. We can only move on to healing, to prepare, to reparations, when we can shift our social narratives from protective armor back towards empathy, which means encountering the excruciating pain that human beings have experienced through systems of oppression and domination and genocide. Now, we do this all the time, the dehumanizing, the cutting off of empathy, and it's not always as fancy or as flashy as death penalty (laughs) you know, and, and these, like, major threads of white supremacy. Sometimes it's actually a lot more subtle. At a systemic level, folks have been talking um, on TikTok lately about some of the dynamics around low-wage work, that the requirements for uniforms, for having, um, not having fantasy-colored hair, for not having visible tattoos or piercings, that these restrictions are most common in low-level service work. And scholars are saying, like, oh yeah, we knew that. (laughs) We knew that, and here's why. It's about social control. Because the person behind the cash cash register at McDonald's is not supposed to be a human being with artistic, artistic expression or individual personality. They're supposed to be a machine that has the logical capabilities of a human, and so Social control is requiring that we dehumanize one another so that we can treat one another, not as the person in front of me who is a part of my community and, and offering something to me that requires something, an emotional presence, we would really prefer that that person keep their uniform on and stick to their script. And again, this is not something, you know, all of these things are bigger than any individual person, right? So I don't, I don't say this to be like, and this is your specific, you know, like it is a, a project, it is a sin, it is a rupture in our community that we inherited, that we uphold every day. And the antidote is empathy. The antidote is to this disconnect is actually to intentionally connect to one another. The antidote is the gospel mandate which says love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We have to. We are called to as people following Jesus, we are called to rehumanize ourselves and one another. And that is what Jesus is doing when Jesus says, "Hey, John is experiencing this in a powerful way. And you know what works for him? Fasting, wailing, weeping, a lot of yelling. Rage is what John is experiencing. And I know it's not convenient for you in power, but maybe instead of chastising him and tone policing him and telling him how to be a good, obedient poor person, you could open up to why he's so angry? What's making him so upset? And then you might, you might be able to catch what makes him so hopeful, what gives him so much fire and energy, what, what makes him feel alive and awake to a new world when he comes out of the river. You might be able to be baptized with John and see the way out of this tunnel. You might be able to see the coming kingdom. But I came with the good stuff. I came with the wine and the dancing and the hanging out. And you don't want that from me either. You don't want that from me either because that's not me being a good, obedient, socially controlled person either. You don't want us to perform, or I'm sorry, you want us to perform for you, dancing, weeping, wailing, whatever, in the ways that allow you to continue benefiting from hierarchy, allow you to keep setting the tone for the social order. And so, when Jesus comes in and feasts and parties, it flies in the face of religious social control that says your only joy is in obedience to social or religious order. And Jesus is saying, no, my joy is in God. My joy is in you. My joy is in this really good wine at this wedding. My joy is in this perfume this gift that a woman I love has offered to me. My joy is made complete in community, and it cannot be something that I perform for you, the smile I plaster on my face, so that you can keep dehumanizing me and benefiting from extracting from my well-being. The antidote is empathy at every level for those in privilege and power but also for those at the margins. It's just that those at the margins have a significant head start. Jamil Zaki says that empathy is like a muscle. When it's not used, it can atrophy. We think of empathy as being something inherent, right? Oh, so-and-so is such an empathetic person. Oh, so-and-so just, you know, they just have a hard time connecting with people. Empathy is a skill. It's a muscle. It's something that we can tend or neglect like a plant. Are you cultivating? Are you tending to the empathy that God gave you planted and rooted in your body? I want you to imagine your empathy like, and I'm, I'm standing, I'm moving out of the way of my, my notes so that you can see. I want you to feel, you know, that pit in your stomach It's not just for terror and anxiety and procrastination. (laughs) I want you to imagine it as like a fertile field that God has planted empathy there. And you can deny it sunlight and you can deny it water, but it will always be there ready to grow when we come to tend to it, right there in your gut. Now, Researchers have identified three kinds of empathy. Emotional, which is basically like when you, they use the phrase in the literature, when you catch the feeling of others. And um, I don't, I can't help but just start singing um, Don't Be Afraid to Catch Feels in the back of my head. I don't know if that was as big for everyone else in the, the summer of 2017, but... Don't be afraid to catch feels. This is about the emotional empathy. It's just about being open, about having the emotional awareness to register in your being what someone else is feeling and to actually feel it. A second kind of empathy is cognitive. It is the willingness to understand, to be curious to say, why does this person feel this way? And I wanna give you all some reassurance that if that first one, if like actually feeling what someone else is feeling is really hard for you, that's okay. You can do a lot of legwork to bridge that gap by really investing in that cognitive empathy, thinking through, why would this person feel this way? and the last the last type of empathy identified by research is compassion compassion now in our language that literally you can you can feel it right there in the world com- in the word compassion with passion the emotional level is about kind of registering like oh this like quick hit like oh that person's feeling sad the cognitive is thinking through why but with passion is about this deep identity this connectedness compassion is a word that comes up in the scriptures a lot and it is a a greek word that i'm i'm so sorry i'm gonna make sarah finger sign in asl thank god for sarah The Greek word is splachnizomai. (laughs) Splachnizomai. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Yeah. Splachnizomai. So, what that word means, that Greek word that is peppered throughout our scriptures, it does come from this Greek understanding of where compassion, where that emotion lies. So when we talk about stuff in English, a lot of times we talk about from the heart or with your heart on your sleeve. But the Greek understanding of the body of emotions, especially this emotion, this connecting to one another, what we translate as compassion literally means from your internal organs, from your guts. The Greek is talking about, the word that we are using here is talking about that field in the pit of your stomach, in the root of your guts that is, that is built for empathy. And, and this word shows up all over the place. It's the word that describes the feeling that the father has upon seeing the return of the prodigal son. In his gut, he feels, he feels what his son is feeling and he rushes to meet him. This is the same word used for what the the Good Samaritan experienced in encountering another beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. From the gut, this punch to the gut, right? That says, I am connected to you, and I have to do something about it. It's a word that is used so often describing Jesus' feelings towards people. This is how Jesus feels towards us with compassion. It comes up over and over again when people are sick, when people are hungry, when Jesus encounters women, when Jesus is describing God's relationship to people who are in debt slavery. And in all of those cases, Jesus is intervening. So this is not an academic or a removed or a wow, look at what's happening over there. This is the kind of emotional connection that is so deep and so personal that it requires action. We are moved to act from our compassion. We are propelled by that knowing in our gut that something is wrong that must be made right. God's compassion for God's people is part of God's image that we were given, planted in our bodies to know when something is not right, when someone is hurting and we are called to do something about it. This is the nature of solidarity. This is solidarity, is compassion that propels action, that moves us through that tunnel, pulls down Our shields reconnects us to empathy and gives us the strength to act, to set things right, to usher in the kingdom. Now, this is hard. This is really hard. It's especially hard when we are implicated in in some of these problems. But we have scriptural descriptions of that as well. One of the uses of this word, this compassion that moves someone to act It describes the reaction of Pharaoh's daughter discovering baby Moses in a basket in the reeds. She was moved with compassion. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Now, it was her dad who had ordered the murder of every one of those children. Moses was only alive because he had escaped the systems put in place, not by, by her, like, distant ancestors, but, like, by her dad. She was benefiting from this. She was Pharaoh's daughter. And I don't know what the conversations were like at the dinner table when Pharaoh found out what she had done. But she was moved with compassion. And so she intervened, and she saved his life. She actually brought him unknowingly back to his own mother, and then raised him in Pharaoh's home when he was old enough. So we have these examples from places of privilege, of what it takes to confront the people in our lives, the systems in our lives. Now, did Pharaoh's daughter do enough? No, (laughs) right? Pharaoh's daughter moved with what she had in that moment. Was that action enough alone to free God's people from slavery? No, but it sure was an important part of what God was doing. It sure made that liberation possible a generation later. So what can we do from our positions of privilege to reconnect to empathy, come what may, to act, to intervene? Now I know many folks in this room have lots of experiences of privilege and power, some of which it's hard to own up to. And I know a lot of folks in this room have identities, positions in the world of oppression and of suffering and of powerlessness. So I also want to just sort of shout out that another dynamic here of turning off that empathy, of covering that field, of squashing that plant, is a survival and coping strategy that we can employ from positions of oppression that's just about dissociating from our own pain. This is something that we're trying to do to get by, right? It's something that we're trying to do because connecting to the level of our own despair or rage feels scary. Allowing ourselves to feel hope and joy and creativity feels terrifying. And so one of the ways that this sickness, this sin of humanity has taken root in all of our bodies is that even folks in positions of oppression can turn off their empathy, especially towards themselves, as a coping and survival strategy. And ultimately, it it serves the systems as a kind of self-policing, right? Right? because the people in power don't have to be worried about your flourishing, your joy, your creativity, your weeping, your wailing, your rage, if you are just stuffing all of that down too. It's a way that we all participate in this. And we all also know that oppressed people can tone police one another like nobody's business. We can all try and survive by policing one another and saying, let's get what little we can get. Instead of getting the freedom that we are promised in Jesus, in the kingdom, in liberation, in solidarity. And this is the scary part about solidarity is that it only works when we're all bought in. (laughs) But that's how all of God's miracles work. That's how all of God's miracles work. We all open up to one another to the possibility of hope and freedom. To the possibility that interdependence is less scary than going it alone, to the possibility that domination is not serving anyone. And so whether we are dominated or being dominated, or a bit of both, rather than trying to climb those ladders as fast as we can, we need to dismantle them. The first will become last. The last will become first, because there are no first and last in the kingdom of heaven. Our instructions are to love God a neighbor and self. If that isn't a description of empathy I don't know what it is. We talk sometimes about how love is a verb. Love is an action and it is. But we can get too intellectual about it. It is also an emotional experience. Love is compassion. Love is allowing an openness in our own being to know what we are truly going through and to hold space and love and room for that. And to do that with others and with God. Now, I do feel like it would be irresponsible of me in this community knowing who is here not to just shout out that loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is not the same as the instruction to love your neighbor in place of yourself. Right? So in that, in that triangle, of relationships, God, neighbor, self, wherever it is that your empathy is the most stuck or stagnant or buried, that's where you are called to dwell and to open up and to feel the possibilities. And for many people, for most of us, there is some amount of stagnation in that compassion for other people. But I also know that some Folks here, including folks with identities of oppression, have actually channeled all of that empathy into others in place of themselves. We can only be in relationship if we bring ourselves also. We each are children of God, deserving of compassion. And that begins in our own bodies. God has given us all the tools we need. God has given us one another. God has given us instruction and promises. God has shown us how to weep and wail, how to dance and feast, and how to do so in bold and direct defiance of the structures that are trying to police our tone for their benefit. We have stories of folks laying down their privilege. We have stories of folks boldly moving through spaces that they aren't allowed When we find our identity in our createdness and we share that with one another, we come close to the kingdom. It is already alive in you. Is it buried? Is it still a seed? Does it need a little miracle grow? How can you tend that compassion in your body? How can it spring forth with the fruits of solidarity? And how can we together, in the image of God, be co workers in building the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? God, you have gifted us with such an expansive range of expression. You've given us the capacity for joy and hope, for weeping, wailing, and rage, for creativity, for contemplation, for solitude and for ongoing, vibrant connection through loving community. God, may we open ourselves to the full range of feeling in our own bodies. May we have compassion for ourselves. May our guts be aligned with our own guts. May we not be so shielded that we cannot feel what is true and alive in our very bodies. And God, in awakening that compassion may we feel it with and for one another even in the face of the implications of our guilt even in the face of difficulty encountering emotions we have the struggle to live under oppression god give us the strength through your love through our own bodies and through our connection with one another give us the strength to encounter the depth of those feelings that propel us to act May we catch that vision of solidarity and hope. May we move into action and vibrancy. May the kingdom be alive in our bodies, in our communities, and in the world to come. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus who wept and danced, who raged and feasted. God, you are good. May we see your goodness come alive in us, here, now. And always. Amen.